Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. We have a terrific guest coming to us all the way from San Francisco. We have Paul Fogel, who is an attorney up in San Francisco with a great firm. And that firm is Reed Smith. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul. His practice focuses on appeals, writs, post-trial motions, law and motion matters in a broad range of civil areas, including unfair competition, health care, trademark infringement, trade secret misappropriation, defamation, product liability, taxation, contracts, public entity law, premises liability, and much, much more. He has handled more than 350 appellate matters. Those were resulting in some 60 published opinions including matters in the California Supreme Court, the District of Columbia, and Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, every appellate district of the California Court of Appeal, and several other appellate courts. Paul has a number of national and regional clients who engage him directly to represent them in appeals and related proceedings. He regularly provides appellate assistance to Reed Smith's trial attorneys, and he's frequently engaged by non-Reed Smith attorneys, other firms, to consult or handle appellate matters as well. Paul's terrific. He was named uh, one of Northern California's top 100 attorneys by Northern California Super Lawyers Magazine in 2005, 2007, and 2008, and has been included as a super lawyer in appellate law annually since 2004 through 2008. And he's also been included in the best lawyers in America since 2006. And the way I found him was I read one of his wonderful articles about defamation and the new information age. So I want to thank Paul for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Mari, for inviting me. Well, you're terrific. You've done some great things. 
Help us understand, is the internet a medium subject to legal regulation? What's going on? That's the Wild West, basically. It certainly is. Yes, the internet is subject to legal regulation, and what's just fascinating for an appellate lawyer is the contours of that regulation are yet to be defined. We know that, uh, we know from some court decisions that where you post your posting is really irrelevant. If that posting finds its way, as it does, into the home of anybody in the world, uh, certainly in America, uh, one can uh, sue, if, the, if a defamatory statement is made on the Internet, one can sue, uh, one can get jurisdiction over the Internet poster in the plaintiff's home jurisdiction. In other words, there's a requirement in, in law that one can get personal jurisdiction over someone if they are located in that state or doing business in that state. Well, when you post something on the Internet, where are you doing business or where are you residing? Everywhere. Everywhere. And so um, those those issues are still being sorted out, but it, it seems to become, uh, it's becoming more and more clear that the fact that you're in cyberspace is not going to protect you. The fact that you're in California, let's say, uh, projecting something into cyberspace is not going to pr- uh, protect you necessarily if you defame a Pennsylvania resident, for example. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you, because here we are sitting on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, and, you know, the younger generation is blogging even more than my generation. And they're blogging and saying things that I see that are pretty shocking sometimes and negative and it's it's a scary place. I mean, I'm I'm actually terrified to blog <laughs> because I I don't know how it's going to be perceived. But right. how about blogging? Is it, can that be considered a defamatory statement on the internet if you're just blogging with an opinion? Well, if you uh, as an internet poster, as a blogger, uh, make uh, write a defamatory statement um, that harms the reputation of someone of an identifiable person then you can be subject to defamation liability. It does not matter that it happens to occur in cyberspace because the means of communication for defamation <clears throat> excuse me, is not necessarily relevant. What's relevant is whether you have made a um, statement of fact that could be construed as false and damaging to someone's reputation. So so let's go back, because, you know, I, I'm a lawyer, but a lot of people don't really understand exactly what constitutes actionable defamation. Isn't there a, a real fine line between free speech and, you know, speech that may be subject to liability? I mean, that, that's a real tricky, slippery slope, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, we know from the U.S. Supreme Court and California Supreme Court that the lines um, in, uh, let's say, printed um, speech or even speech over the radio or the television, um, the line is one that uh, often between opinion and fact. Um, We have a right to free speech in this country, and that speech cannot be the subject of a lawsuit, civil or criminal, unless it it constitutes an assertion of fact, a factually provable assertion that damages someone's reputation. So let's say um, I make a statement that George is a child molester or George is a sex offender. That is a provably false, I mean, if if it's false, it's provably false, and that would be defamatory. But let's say I say George is a philanderer. Mm -hmm. 
um, or George is um, a jerk. A jerk, exactly, <laughs> uh, or a crook. Right. Now that that's less provable. I mean, mm-hmm. what exactly qualifies to be a crook? Right. Or let's say a television critic. I handled one case. Let's say a television critic uh, critiques a television show and makes all sorts of, um, you know, uh, negative uh, remarks. Negative remarks. Uh-huh. Um, is that a um, can that be the subject of defamation, or is that really an opinion? Courts have held that that's really an opinion. <clears throat> There's an, uh, there are a couple other important um, principles in defamation law. One is the public figure uh, principle, and that comes from a case called New York Times versus Sullivan, a very famous case, right. which basically says that if you are a public figure, uh, let's say President-elect Obama or a judge, um, or you are a limited public figure. In other words, you are a private person, but you have uh, injected yourself into the public debate on a certain question, mm-hmm. um, and you feel you have been defamed, you cannot sue for defamation unless the um, defendant made the uh, defamatory statement uh, with reckless disregard for its truth. So there's a higher standard for plaintiffs, for public figures or limited public figures to prove defamation than there is for private persons. So the, reckless disregard is not just like, oh, I, you know, I thought it was true. It means almost maliciously that, right. they, that they knew it was false and they right. did it to harm them. And if you think about it, that doctrine really protects free speech because it allows people to make uh, uh, critical statements of public figures and limited public figures, which uh, really enhances the public debate, which is what the First Amendment is all about. One last sort of uh, principle of defamation law is that a statement must be, quote, of and concerning the plaintiff. So, um, for example, if I made a statement that all co-eds at UC Irvine are airheads, Mm -hmm. that would not be of and concerning, let's say, Ms. Jones, who is a a, um, co-ed at UC Irvine, because all co-eds at Irvine, UC Irvine um, is not of and concerning Miss Jones necessarily. It's too broad. It applies to too many people. But let's say I said all co-eds on the women's basketball team at UC Irvine are airheads. That might be of and concerning Miss Jones if she's a member of the basketball team. Usually the test is that the class must be fewer than 25 people. Oh, interesting. Okay. Huh. What about if someone goes on a blog and they talk about complaints that they have with a company and they talk, I I just was looking at uh, consumeraffairs.com and I was looking at one company where I have a plaintiff who has a problem with this company and I was looking at all of these complaints. Um, What about that for defamation? When it claims, when they want to say this is business disparagement against my company, what do you think of that? Well, if it's provably false fact, in other words, it's a statement of fact that is provably false, like this company is um, engages in payoffs to uh, um, the police, or yeah, or right. the police, yeah. Uh, you know, that's very specific. Then right. that could be uh, trade disparagement. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's an opinion, I don't think this company is very well run. Or the executives, or they treat consumers poorly, right? Or they don't know what they're doing, or they're wasting um, the shareholders' assets, or whatever. 
that is less provably false than um, the example I gave. Right. Or if they say this company refused to um, cancel my card, credit card, for example, when I asked them to do it in writing five times. Um, well, that's that's not pretty specific. No, that, it isn't. That's, yeah, that's but it's that negative might still. Other laws, mm-hmm. not not defamation. Okay. So, in general, what what rights does a um, a poster or a blogger have to keep his or her identity anonymous? You know, we see people making up names like you know Susie Q or uh, Sally Two Shoes or something. There, they come on there anonymous. In general, what rights does a prospective plaintiff who might want to you know sue that person? How how can they discover who the blogger is, and can they? Right. Well, this is really a very interesting area of the law, and, and that got me interested in writing the article that you referred to at the top of the program. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's important for free speech purposes that we allow bloggers to remain anonymous. And this was the subject of a case that I got real interested in in the Court of Appeal in San Jose, where a um, an anonymous blogger um, posted a, a posting about a company a Florida company, uh, calling the head of that company a crook, uh, stated she had a fake medical degree and suggested that she had poor feminine hygiene. Now, that, that woman, the head of the company, um, said, look, this is, this is outrageous. This is defamatory. Um, you've ruined my reputation. I'm going to sue you for defamation. The problem is she didn't know who made that posting because <clears throat> it's an anonymous, like most blogs, uh, involve anonymous posters. So what can she do? Well, she can file what's called a motion to quash. I'm sorry, she, she can sue for, in, uh, for defamation, and then uh, the blogger uh, has to decide whether he or she wants to remain anonymous. And this was the subject of a case called Krinsky versus Doe 6. Now, the court um, in that case said that using a pseudonymous screen name gives Internet users a safe outlet to express novel ideas or unorthodox political views or to criticize others without fear or intimidation or reprisal. Okay, so that's the freedom of speech part of it. Right, and and online anonymity, the court said, allows such speech without suppression or other intervention by the media or more powerful figures in the field. So it, the court there recognizes that there is an interest in free speech that need, and privacy that needs to be protected to foster free speech. Right. So on the one hand, it said, look, we recognize that it's important for bloggers to remain anonymous because that fosters the free flow of ideas. On the other hand, we also recognize the rights of plaintiffs who are injured by defamatory statements to sue for defamation over those statements, and if they want to um, sue the blogger, we're going to prescribe a means for doing so. So, what the court did was basically do say this. It said, if a plaintiff believes he or she has been defamed by an internet blogger, he or she can file an action for defamation, and that can be filed any, anywhere in the country, as I mentioned before. Where, wherever the uh, so-called victim lives. Right, and that's what Ms. Krinsky did. She mm-hmm. filed an action in Florida. Now, she files it in the name of Krinsky versus Doe, since she doesn't know who 
uh, defamed her. Right. Now, what happens at that point is she serves um, she serves the complaint, or she writes a letter to the internet service provider, Yahoo, Google, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, typically, she will know Wh- wherever the blogging occurred. Right. She will know who uh, who the blogger. I mean, who the inter- ISP is because right, that's she usually saw identified. Right. And she will say, "Dear ISP." Give me the name of uh, Doe, because I have filed a lawsuit against uh, that person, and I want uh, their identifying information so I can serve the complaint on them, and we can proceed with the lawsuit. Now, typically what happens is Yahoo or Google, uh, they stay neutral. They, of course, know the identity of the blogger. They turn around and contact the blogger and say, Dear blogger, uh, we've received a request for identifying information. If you do not act to quash this, this summons, uh, because it's a, basically a, a summons to the ISP asking the ISP to produce information, right. if you, blogger, do not move to quash the subpoena, quash the summons, uh, within X days, we are going to divulge your identifying information to the plaintiff. And at that point, the blogger can hire a lawyer or on his or her own, move to quash, typically in the superior court of the county where the ISP is located. And that's, oh, not know, where it was filed. Not in Florida, for uh-huh. example. So okay. that's why we So if a, the blogger's in New York, they go to the superior court in New York, you're saying? Well, they go to the where the ISP is located. Oh, I see. Okay, so if the ISP is in New York, right. and they go there, okay. And so the, uh, uh, Yahoo and Google uh, are located in, in Santa Clara County, right? And that's why this uh, the Krinsky versus Doe case arose in what we call the Sixth District Court of Appeal, which covers uh, Santa Clara County. So Doe Six filed a um, uh, motion to quash the subpoena and said. Um, I should not be required to divulge my identity unless Krinsky, the uh, injured victim, shows that she has a at least uh, an arguably meritorious case. Because if you force me to divulge my identity, it turns out that she doesn't have an arguably meritorious case. You have sacrificed my privacy rights, my First Amendment rights, uh, in the name of what? Nothing. Right. In the name of a frivolous lawsuit or a lawsuit that really doesn't have any arguable merit. Mm-hmm. So the court was wrestling with, on the one hand, the plaintiff's right to vindicate her um, uh, reputational rights. Right, right. Uh, and on the other hand, the blogger's right to anonymity, um, uh, which is uh, uh, part and parcel of his or her rights to free speech. And what it did is it said, well, you know, we're going to look at what statements the plaintiff is claiming that uh, the blogger made about her. And as I said before, it was uh, statements that she was a crook, had a fake medical degree, suggested she had poor feminine hygiene. And what the court did was say, you know what, we think that those statements are more in the nature of an opinion, which is non-actionable. Not, it's not defamation, rather than a statement of fact that's provably false. Mm-hmm. And because 
um, Krinsky, the plaintiff, has not made out what's called a prima facie case, meaning a arguably meritorious case of, inter- of defamation, we are going to uh, quash the subpoena, meaning throw it out, preserve the Doe Sixes, the blogger's identity, and say, too bad, Ms. Krinsky, you're not going to have uh, the blogger's identifying information because you haven't really shown that you have a meritorious case. You're, you can't get to first base on your case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's an important holding because, as I said, it preserves the blogger's right to anonymity, which the court said is very, very important. Uh, because we need uh, people need to be have the right to remain anonymous because they are usually less powerful than the plaintiffs who wish to sue them. Right, right. So where does that leave Krinsky? Nowhere, right? Basically nowhere, because she can't, of course, proceed with her lawsuit. Uh, she can't get damages from a doe. Um, you know. I guess she can only blog back and say this person won't back. reveal herself or his himself. And, you know, try and kind of do tit for tat. Yes, and that not that consistent with the First Amendment? You know, more speech is better, you know. Right. The, the, the purpose of the First Amendment is to foster speech, and sometimes we cure a free speech, um, you know, we cure a speech problem, a defamation problem with more speech. So Krinsky can write back saying, I'm not a crook, I'm uh, uh, I." have appropriate feminine hygiene, and I don't have a fake medical degree. In fact, I have a real medical degree. Right, and then she can say where it's from, and people can look it up or whatever she wants to do right. and say that the person with the screen name is a liar. Right, <laughs> right. And then, can the other one, then the other one might say, okay, well, you called me a liar. Now right. now the whole thing starts right. again. We're but, speaking... But is, okay, go ahead. I just wanted to introduce you again, oh. Paul. Um, so people who just are driving by or listening in, they... They just caught you and they want to know, who is this brilliant man? We're speaking with Paul Fogel, who is an attorney with Reed Smith up in Northern California in San Francisco, and his practice focuses on appeals. And he's had some very interesting cases that he's telling us about with the uh, information age and defamation on the Internet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, actually, Mari, this Krinsky case was not my case. It's just a case I got interested in, but um, but I know I wrote that you're in, yeah yeah. But yeah. I know that you're you're. This is right. something that's facing you too. Lots right. more coming up. I mean, we are. I am involved in a case uh, in another state involving some internet postings against a client of mine that are um, objectionable that do constitute, as you alluded to before, uh, trade disparagement. And we are currently wrestling with what to do about that because those statements are very critical and very, and they're harming the reputation of the company. And we have to sort out exactly how to deal with them. And, you know, those kinds of issues are coming up more and more because we don't know if it's an anonymous posting. We don't know if it's an employee, a disgruntled employee. We don't know if it's a customer. We don't know if it's uh, maybe a competitor. So is that what... Absolutely What's going on right. in the you, you hit it right on the nose. I mean, suppose it is a disgruntled employee or a competitor who wants to drive the price of the, the stock, the, yeah. the stock down. How do how does the um, the target company deal with that? And how what are the remedies that the target company has? And I think you know if you look back to this Krinsky case, it strikes a good balance. It says if you have you as the victim, if you have a decent case for trade disparagement or, or um, trade libel um, or 
uh, unfair business practices or any other many other kinds of torts that will work here, mm-hmm. then show us. Show us your cards. Show us what you have. Show us the evidence that you have. And then, and only then, we will let you discover the identity of the blogger, and the suit then can proceed on its way. So when, if, you, when you file your complaint, you have to have the prima facie case in there? Well, you, what do you, do? you should never file a complaint without having uh, investigated, of course. Right, but right. But really, the rubber hits the road when the blogger files uh, a motion to quash the subpoena to discover his or her identity. Oh, right, because if they don't do a motion to quash, you can find out. Right. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, if they don't want to spend the money or they don't have the money to do a motion to quash. Well, yeah. And that brings up another issue. I mean, um, there is, of course, in many instances, a very um, inequitable balance here between a large company, let's say, and a, a little old Internet blogger. Right. But, you know, on the other hand, Internet bloggers should not be making provably false statements. Uh, that are defamatory. Just because you're on the Internet and just because you're anonymous does not give you the right to defame someone. Right. I mean, put yourself in the company's position. Put yourself in an individual's position. If someone said Paul Fogel um, is an alcoholic who has 15 uh, uh, glasses of wine. (laughs) Yeah, 15 DUIs. (laughs) I would not be really happy about that. No, of course not. There's a there's a wonderful book, and I don't know if you've read it, but you probably would get a kick out of it. And it might help you in some of your appellate appeals by um, by an, a, a uh, law professor, Dan Solov. I don't know if you know who he is at George Washington uh, University, but he wrote a book called "The Future of Reputation on the Internet." Oh, interesting! It's fabulous. In fact, you can listen to our interview with him because I read the book and I interviewed him. Oh, I guess it was. Um, at the end of last year, 2007, because it came out last year. It's a great book. Very And he, he goes over all of the issues, and I know you would really love it, and you might even want to quote it, because it's just the, the stories that he tells are incredible. And you might want to just listen to the interview. For anybody else who's listening in and you want to know about the future of reputation on the Internet, you might want to listen to our uh, archived interview on, okay. right on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, because it is just fascinating and and terrifying and you know i i can understand for even a small company it doesn't even have to be a large company a small company that you know the competitors want to go after them and get them or there's revenge right usually we see a lot of this for revenge yes and um what's interesting and, and not too far attenuated is what i've had where people call me that someone has created a myspace in their name Okay, and and defame them that way. In other words, they they have a cyber identity theft, right? And then they do things or say things on that that make them look bad. And it's, a, it's what do you think about that? Because I I keep getting those um, from people, and it's getting worse as a matter of fact. Well, that, people yeah. calling me. That's very interesting because um, the notion that you have a property right in your face for mm-hmm. example, um, and you do in your image, um, that's a kind of a settled area of the law that um, is subject of a California statute. Now, does that apply in cyberspace? So suppose someone put a Facebook posting and pretended to be you and did all that stuff. Does that constitute a theft of identity that's actionable under, 
um, California law. It's the end of that. Well, I think it is. It is. And one of the things that we did, even even under federal law, what um, we had a lady actually we had her on our show where someone created something. It wasn't Matchbook, but it was one of these uh, matchmaking websites and put up a website uh, with her and it was not her. And it made her sound like she was hot to trot. And all these things, and and the um, the website even gave her phone number and her address, and men started coming to her door, and she called me because she couldn't get the New York police to help her, and she tried to get the um, the the identity of the person who did this, and of course, you know the uh, the ISP would not give it to her. Right. So what we did, even though she she subpoenaed them. Well, this is what happened. So what what we did instead of going through all that to subpoena. We actually use the Fair Credit Reporting Act that says that if you're a victim of identity theft and you write to the um, to the company that issued the account, that they have to provide you documentation of the fraud without a subpoena. Interesting. And interesting. and they have to do it within 30 days, and they have to get all of it, and they can't charge you for what they send you. So uh, they didn't want to do it at first, but then when I got involved, they we did get them to do that. So we didn't have to do it, but that was because she was a victim of identity theft, and we used kind of a creative way of getting that information, and we've done that on other uh, other types of cases on, on the Internet when people have found out that their identity was stolen. Right. And right. then she did find out, and um, it was it turned out to be someone she knew from 10 years before that was her roommate in college. Right. Isn't wow. that bizarre? Interesting. It, it was interesting. But I mean, but I would think that, you know, that was an easier way of doing it. And for someone who didn't have a lot of money, she didn't have to file a lawsuit and she didn't have to serve, you know, she didn't have to get an attorney. I helped her for free. Right. Well, so, you know, on this, um, on this Krinsky versus Doe case, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has been very active because, I mean, let's face it, bloggers don't have a lot of money. Sometimes uh, EFF will come in. <clears throat> the EFF is a um, basically a public interest legal group up in San Francisco. Yes, very. We've had them inter- on our show on our show too. Very interested in um, these internet issues. Will come in and represent these does um, and assert rights on their behalf, um, all in the name of sort of pres- preserving free speech and privacy. So there are ways that people can get um, their rights vindicated. On the other hand, if you are a plaintiff who has been defamed, you know, that is serious business, as I said before. Right. Talk to us about the uh, California's anti-slap law and uh, and what is a and what is a slap lawsuit? Well, this is important in the defamation area because the California legislature has enacted a statute to um, try to uh, vindicate the rights of defendants. Let's um, let's stay with the Krinsky case, like Doe, who have been the subject uh, of, a, of a non-meritorious lawsuit uh, in situations where that, the, uh, the Doe person has tried to uh, engage in free speech. The anti-slap statute basically says if a plaintiff files a cause of action, let's say for defamation, against someone uh, for essentially... Um, uh, engaging in free speech or rights uh, protected by the Constitution, the defendant can get an early um, motion to strike the lawsuit, throw the case out, and get attorney's fees if the person, if the defendant shows, number one, that uh, the uh, statement involved free speech or rights protected by the Constitution, and number two, that the plaintiff's 
lawsuit is not um, is basically frivolous. There's no reasonable probability that the plaintiff will prevail. Now, and it was pur- purposely just to find out who it was. Um, sorry. And and it's purposely to find out who it was. That the that the purpose really wasn't. It it was just to find out who it was and to stop them from doing it. Well, it, it, the anti-slap um, statute came into being because um, it, it originally arose in the labor context where you had a lot of picketers, let's say, picketing outside a factory, and the company um, filed a lawsuit for trespass, uh, basically trying to stop the First Amendment picketing from taking place. And the statute was passed um, with that in mind, but it's been expanded far beyond that to root out all sorts of frivolous lawsuits that would infringe a defendant's uh, constitutional rights. Now, let's take our Krinsky case again. Now, let's say that Doe uh, had decided to reveal his or her identity, John, John Jones, let's say, and then moved to strike the lawsuit under the anti-slap statute, which Jones could do. Jones then, uh, and we know from the Krinsky opinion that the case was not meritorious because although the, the court concluded that the postings were intemperate, insulting, and disgusting, they uh, nevertheless were non-actionable opinion, not defamatory. So Doe then, or Jones now, can get uh, not only the lawsuit thrown out, but can get his or her attorney's fees for having to file that anti-slap motion. That's a great tool for people who are the victims of uh, frivolous lawsuits that try to infringe their constitutional rights. Now, what happened after the Krinsky case, there was another case that involved an Internet uh, blogger who posted a defamatory statement against a, uh, I think it was a rabbi in Ohio. And um, uh, what happened was the uh, rabbi uh, served subpoenas on Google in Santa Clara County, seeking again, like in the Krinsky case, to discover the blogger's identity. The blogger moved to Quash, remember that procedure I talked about Mm -hmm. before, and then um, uh, filed an anti-slap motion to strike the subpoena. Uh, a little later, uh, the rabbi dismissed his request for uh, the subpoena. Uh, <clears throat> basically, what happened, the rabbi um, pulled out of the lawsuit, decided that he didn't want anything to do with the suit, decided it wasn't worth it. But by then, uh, the blogger had spent something like $20,000 trying to defeat this um, subpoena. And the question was, let's see, under the anti-slap statute, remember I said that it entitles entitles winning defendants to attorney's fees. Uh, The blogger said, now I want my fees. The lawsuit's gone, but I spent $20,000 trying to defeat this motion to um, trying to quash the subpoena which eventually uh, the rabbi withdrew, so I want my money. Mm. And the trial court said, okay, we'll give you, um, we think that's right, that's within the spirit of the anti-slap statute. Um, You were the victim of an unmeritorious suit that uh, sought to chill your First Amendment rights. You you moved to dismiss that lawsuit, or uh, actually you moved to to quash the subpoena, and that was, uh, you know, you succeeded because the subpoena actually was withdrawn. 
Oh, so that was considered that was considered a a win. Are you saying? A considered a win for the blogger. Uh-huh. But what happened was, the rabbi then appealed, and um, had he uh, shown a prima facie case? Well, it, it was a very weird procedural posture because the rabbi had uh, withdrawn the lawsuit, right. so there was no reason, and also withdrew the um, the motion the um, subpoena. So no, the answer to your question is no. There's no. There was never a showing of a prima facie case. Oh goodness! So the the court of appeal said, you know, we really would. We're sorry, but we're not going to give you the twenty thousand uh, dollars, Mr. Doe, because of a little quirk in the anti-slap statute. The anti-slap statute protects, gives someone a right to dismiss what's called a cause of action or a claim. And that's something like defamation, trade libel, uh, battery, assault, whatever. But the anti-slap statute does not protect motions to quash. It does not give you a right to fees if you are successful in filing a motion to quash a subpoena. And that's just because the language of the statute very clearly says uh, it applies only to causes of action. Mm. One judge there said, uh, you know, I agree that the motion to quash is not a what, call, what we call a cause of action. And I really think that's too bad because um, this Doe's rights were as much infringed as any Doe's rights would be infringed if a cause of action was asserted against the Doe. And the fact that a, a subpoena was served on Doe rather than a cause of action uh, should, is really immaterial because the rights that are at issue need to be protected, and those are the rights of the blogger to remain anonymous and um, have a way to vindicate his or her First Amendment rights. Mm. And he said, you know what, I think the legislature, this is a sort of separation of powers thing, right. where the court is just applying the statute, and you know, like it's supposed to do, it's engaging in judicial restraint like courts are, are required to do. And he said, look, I think the legislature should really look at this problem and expand the statute to motions to quash because there is a, I'm quoting now, a proliferation of chat rooms and websites that allow computer users to express their views. And this is a trend that's going to inevitably continue and will produce increased requests for the identity of anonymous bloggers. And there needs to be a need to guard, there needs to be a way to guard against, quote, the silencing of a critic by harassment, ostracism, or retaliation. Wow. That's so a really interesting Now, what conundrum. state was that in? That was also from the San Jose Court of Appeal. Oh, so California it, is, is pretty active in privacy rights. So right. that somebody's got a... Has any legislation been introduced in that area? No, but I think um, there's a good chance that the anti-slap statute may be expanded, but and you, you see this uh, tension, and this is all because of the Internet. It's nothing, nothing else, because right. we, we have this motion to quash procedure, which is um, used to defeat a plaintiff's attempt to discover the identity of an anonymous blogger. It is really a tough, a real tough balance, isn't it? Right. Because you have some people who are just malicious and will abuse this right, and there are other people who have political 
you know, opinions and opinions about important aspects of government and important issues of being a whistleblower in a company, you know, all, it's, it's a terrible place. I mean, I think it's really tough. Tell us about the other case that you were t- talking about, that you, uh, the other appellate case. Um, the other cases I've been involved in? or Yeah, you, you said that you, there were two cases that you had, uh, you recently Wr- wrote an article about two appellate well, actually, cases. Well, I, actually, I just described the second oh, case. Okay. That was called Tendler, um, and it, um, it involved this issue about whether you can invoke the anti-slap statute when you defeat a motion to quash, mm-hmm. whether you have a right to fees. Now, the reason it's an important case is that the right to fees is really uh, part and parcel of the right of access to the courts. If right. you if you are um, if you don't have money and you're not able to vindicate your rights, oftentimes your rights have to be uh, sacrificed. And what what's interesting about this Tendler case is that if um, Doe, the blogger, instead of moving to Quash, had um, divulged his identity, his or her identity, Sam Smith, uh, and then moved to dismiss or strike the lawsuit that the rabbi had filed, that would be defeating a cause of action for defamation. And the blogger, now having um, come out, if you will, would be entitled to fees. So it's interesting that you know yeah. the blogger then would have to, in order to get fees, the blogger has to sacrifice his or her privacy rights, and that's an, that's why it's an interesting conundrum. And this is why the concurring justice, um, Justice McAdams, said that's a that's a difficult conundrum. It's a difficult rock and hard place to put this person in. Because um, why should he be forced to divulge his identity to defeat, uh, to, to vindicate his rights? Isn't that what the anti-slap statute is all about? Right, right. That's the whole purpose. Huh. So that's why I found it very interesting. And it's an interesting to, uh, juxtaposition between that case and the Krinsky case. And they were both out of the same court, which tells you that um, another way of saying that the San Jose Court of Appeal gets a lot of technology issues. because Well, they're right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Exactly, <laughs> right. Interesting. I just want to introduce you again. We're speaking with a wonderful attorney, appellate attorney, Paul Vogel, with Reed Smith up in San Francisco, right in, also in the heart of the Silicon Valley and all of this excitement going on. And he is an appellate attorney, and he works in all areas of civil law and He's got. He's taken an interest in technology, and rightly so. So, what steps might the courts or the legislature take to ensure that the internet bloggers retain their right to anonymity? If you had to write a statute, um, what would would it be? Maybe we should write one together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably, um, if I were a legislator. I would be sympathetic to the conundrum that the blogger in the Tendler case was put in. At the same time, however, I would have to make sure that that um, the right to get fees under the anti-slap statute is uh, predicated on proving that there is absolutely no merit in the plaintiff's motion to uh, or uh, subpoena. In other words, I would incorporate both the Krinsky case, I would incorporate the principles in the Krinsky case, namely that the um, 
uh, the blogger can defeat a motion to qu- uh, can you know, defeat a, uh, can prevail on a motion to quash if he or she shows that the lawsuit has no merit. I would incorporate that into the anti-slap statute. Right. So that's one way that the courts can take to in- ensure that bloggers retain their right to anonymity because that gives them a right of access to the courts via fees. The public policy downsides, of course, are that. Um, you know, we're not letting lawsuits go forward or we're not letting people get access to the courts. See, on the other on the other side of all this sort of defeating lawsuits is the tension that people who are really defamed or injured, as you have mentioned, uh, they need to have a right to go to, go to court. I mean, if a company is um, harmed by a competitor or a disgruntled employee, we have to make sure we preserve that company's rights. And that's a delicate balance. You know... I, it's interesting, as we move in the Internet and the information age and all these kinds of things, it seems to me that there should be other forms of dispute resolution that are less expensive for everybody, you know, just like we use mediation. And, and one who's a mediator, it seems to me that some of these ISPs should probably have ombudsmen that deal with these kinds of issues so that the blogger doesn't have to reveal and... and that there would be some way that this whole thing could be vindicated. In other words, there could be a way that if someone says something and they shouldn't have said it, that the ombudsman can work out that they take it back or something. Right. Do right. you know what I mean? Because it it's so expensive to go through this. I mean, even, and I don't want to take away your job because I know that, you know, <laughs> obviously it okay. goes to an appeal, but it seems to me that it should only be the most important cases that were that, that go to appeal because then they set the precedent. Of course. But the truth of the matter is most people can't afford the kind of lawsuits that you get involved in. Right. That's true. And so, I mean, in my view, there has to be some way that um, such, I, I know that trustee, if you know who trustee is, they are a online kind of um, uh, middle, middle person, middle person that, that, sets up a brand like you can get right. trustee and interesting and they are thinking of it and i'm friends and i actually have had friend meyer on the show and i've spoken with their general counsel and they've thought about doing some kind of ombudsman type work for disputes with with um companies but i don't i mean we haven't specifically talked about these issues of defamation but it seems to me that that would be a better way to go to resolve it quicker and to not destroy someone's reputation if, you know, if they can take something back. Right. And, and you know, taking back is an option in defamation law. Exactly. You see retractions and corrections all the time in the newspaper. Or clarifications. Sometimes, right. you know, the one thing that I notice on the Internet, and I'm sure you notice, and I've, I've gotten more careful in my old age, but... You know, people write things in a blog. They're late at night. They're tired. They say something stupid. They say something that they just offhand that's taken incorrectly or either in such a rush. You know right. what I'm talking about? Same right. thing with emails. I'm, I've learned over the years to be very careful with emails because you, you joke around and somebody doesn't see your face or hear your intonation. Right. So I've uh, watched myself on that too. Right, you know? right, right. But I mean, those are kinds of things. I think we have to start thinking outside of the box that that the legal remedies may not always be there, except for those few that can afford it. Right, and I think alternative dispute resolution is a very, very good idea. This ombudsman right is a very good 
idea. Courts are, are trying to implement mediation programs all the time, and there's no reason why this area couldn't be subject right. to that as well. Right, right. Um, I, I wanted to maybe uh, mention a, a case that's pending before the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, is this be a good time to do that? Yeah, perfect. Um, <clears throat> this is sort of shifting gears, has nothing to do with the Internet. Um, there's but a, it's a privacy case. It is a privacy case, which is why I'm bringing it up. Um, there's a, a very interesting case involving the 49ers um, football team uh, the 49ers has a pat-down policy, meaning that if you are a ticket holder and you go to a 49ers game, you have to go through a um, what I would consider a very mild pat-down. It's mainly it's for weapons, basically. Are there metal detectors, too? Um, I don't think so in this particular. I'm not positive about okay. that. Okay, um, okay. <clears throat> and the reason this is interesting is that it produced a divided opinion of the Court of Appeal, and now it's before the California Supreme Court. What happened was two season ticket holders uh, renewed their subscription, and when they got their tickets, on the back of the ticket it said, we have implemented a pat-down policy, so as part of your season ticket holder status, you will be subject to a pat-down when you come to games. So they were informed of the pat-down policy, and when they uh, either went to the game or they objected to that and they filed a lawsuit, um, claiming that that pat-down was an infringement of the California constitutional right to privacy uh, in Article One, Section 1. The trial court threw the lawsuit out, and the Court of Appeal affirmed uh, by a two-to-one vote, basically, saying that there was not a reasonable expectation of privacy um, because of the consent, the implied consent that the season ticket holders had given when they received their tickets and went to the game anyway, knowing that the policy was in effect. Right, because they could have returned the tickets and said, I'm not going. Right. Okay. And, um, you know, although the issue, the main issue is consent, you receive a ticket, it says we're going to do this, and they do it, and that's the way it goes. Behind all of that is sort of, you know, what rights do people have when they attend a mass sporting event, or even, let's say, if they go to a uh, a rock concert or someplace else where there's a large gathering of people. Right. I mean, we, we face this in the airport. We face this when you go to a nightclub, let's say. Right. Um, and you get... I mean, sure, we, you know, we recently went to see Celine Dion here in Orange County, and when we, not only did they look in my purse, but then they had this baton that they, you know, kind right. of went all over my body and, and my husband's body to make sure that we didn't have anything on us. Right, and I should be... Do a full disclosure here. I represent um, some events uh, managers as a, what they call a friend of the court, amicus, in this case called Sheehan versus SF 49ers. Okay. And we are um, urging the court to uh, uphold the right of uh, promoters or the 49ers uh, football team to engage in what we believe is a relatively minor, albeit, you know, uh, understandably, a, a kind of an invasion of privacy because of the competing interests. I mean, the terrorism and terrorism, yeah, exactly. and security issues. Isn't that always a delicate balance between privacy and security? And and what are we willing to give up in this day and age? Right. And I remember many years ago when airport security came into being. We had a case before the Cal Supreme Court, all about whether those. This is before nine eleven. 
um, what kind of airport security uh, is um, is lawful under the privacy protections. And the court said, look, you know, uh, we've got to protect the uh, the airspace. We've got to protect people's security. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we live in an age where things are dangerous, and that's the way it goes. Um, I guess the question for me would be, as a privacy person, is, is there really a need to touch me with your hand? You know, um, can you instead <laughs> use the baton like these did? You know, they use this baton to go up and down my body to see if I had anything. And actually, one time we went there and my husband forgot and had a knife on him. You know, one of the little pocket knives, right. a tiny, tiny pocket knife. And, you know, they Very took yeah, and they took it away, and he, you know, he forgot that he had it. It's like right. when you go. But anyway, I mean, that was effective to take that away without touching him with their hands. So right. I don't know what would be the the limit of privacy protection. Do you know what yes, I mean? There, that that, that's is, another issue, right? And that certainly is the um, the argument on the other side. The other side argues, well, okay, let's say we we have this uh, this. Uh, procedure, a policy in effect at um, large gatherings, sports events, or rock concerts, does it spill into the workplace? Um, you know, what happens, you know, workplace is a, is a gathering of large numbers of people. If you work at a big uh, facility, let's say. And what- there are a lot of them. When I went to see my son worked at Google in New York City last summer, and when I went to see him, I had to go through all sorts of security stuff before I could get in, just to even sign in to have them call my son. Right. So it does happen in the workplace. Right. And the, what the so-called slippery slope that the other side is claiming here is that if you know you take one step in this direction, that will give carte blanche to employers or other individuals to violate one's privacy rights. And our response is. Well, we'll deal with that issue when it comes up. This is a very limited um, policy. It's relatively brief, and there are compelling reasons um, to engage in it. And besides, you know, going to a sporting event is not like going to the grocery store. You need to go to the grocery store. You shouldn't have to be pat down to go to the grocery store because you need to buy food. Right. But do you need to go to a sporting event? Right. No, you don't really need to do that. And, and the question, I guess, I, I don't know that much about that case, but if I'm a woman and I go, am I pat down by a man? Or uh, Usually these are same-sex pat down. Okay, yeah. okay. And I, that's the, that would be another question. And again, I the only issue I would say is how how far do you have to go, you know? And can you, again, as a mediator in me, I would have said, well, why don't we sit down and, and decide what would be secure and also protect the privacy? How can we come up with and brainstorm a solution to make sure that the privacy rights are protected and security is also protected? There are myriad ways to do that. Right. But we'll see what happens. So, yeah, you'll have to keep up us informed yeah. about that. I expect that case to be argued sometime next year. It's a very, very interesting case. It's drawn a lot of interest. Um, <clears throat> the U.S. government has filed an amicus brief. Um, and people on the other side have. The ACLU is involved. Very, very interesting. Right. Lloyd says we only have about three minutes, but I did want to ask you also about some um, another case that you've been involved in, and that was the the Robert B. versus Susan B. Can you kind of quickly right. tell us about that? Because that was interesting. Very interesting case. Well, that, that case concerned the paternity rights of a father who didn't want to be, had no uh, knowledge that he uh, uh, was a father, 
of a of a of a, a child who was produced basically because his own wife went to a fertility clinic to get fertility treatment and they were having they were trying to have a child they eventually did have a child what was happening was his wife went to a fertility clinic and and was implanted with uh, donated eggs that were fertilized by his sperm was that at UCI uh, no. Oh, okay. Because those private, were those were a bunch oh, of those yes. cases too. Okay, go private ahead. fertility clinic in the Bay Area. Okay. The same day, there was a single woman who was at the same clinic, who did not um, want. Um, she didn't. She wanted uh, donated eggs, and uh, fertilized by anonymous sperm. And instead of fertilizing with anonymous sperm, they fertilized the eggs with Robert's sperm. Hmm. So basically, you had his sperm and um, and donated eggs, and um, implanted into both women. Mm. Um, both women give birth around the same time, and these children are siblings. Oh my goodness! And the fertility clinic knew about the mistake the moment it happened. Knew that they had fertilized the eggs implanted into Susan, not Robert's wife, uh, with Robert's sperm. Without her permission. Without her permission, and more importantly, without Without his his permission permission. or knowledge. And they nevertheless did not counsel an abortion or some kind of other procedure, but they let the thing go until a nurse or someone at that facility blew the whistle on the fertility clinic. Fertility clinic then went and told both parties and said, look, you, you now have full siblings. We're just telling this to you. And Robert decided... You gotta, wants, you gotta hurry up, Lloyd says. So you gotta tell what the issue was and what happened. Okay, the, the issue was whether Robert had a paternity right. And there's a statute in California that says that a, a man who does not voluntarily consent to the use of his sperm has paternity rights when a fertility clinic uses his sperm to fertilize an egg that was implanted into a woman who is not his wife. Very controversial ruling, lots of privacy implications. And uh, the court sided with him and said, well, he didn't consent to. Uh, the use of his sperm, so he has paternity rights, not visitation, I mean, not uh, custody rights, but paternity rights. So Very that means he has to pay child support? <laughs> yes, he was willing to do that. Wow. Well, you have been terrific. We're going to have to have you back after that other case, you know, finalizes next year. Will you do that with us? Sure, that's great. This has been very, very interesting well, and really a lot of fun. Well, you're terrific, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. You okay. are really uh, super. Thank and you. And we will have you back again. Thank okay. you. Take care. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. We've been speaking with Paul Fogel, who is an appellate attorney with Reed Smith, and you can go to reedsmith.com, find out more about him and more about what they're doing and the wonderful cases that they've been working on. Please join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org in the net. Also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can see their bios and their websites. You can also listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts. You can write us emails about your thoughts and what you want to know about in privacy. So thank you and good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.